advisory to those who are not animal lovers, open to new ideas, or interested in integrative holistic healthcare for your pets, and believe that prescription diet is the best food for your pet. This podcast may offend your sensibilities. Have you ever felt frustrated and helpless after listening and doing everything your vet told you to do but it only made your sick pet worse and not get any better? That's me in 2008 with my first adopted cat, Meow. I did everything the vet told me to do and I realised she wasn't getting any better and only worse. So I decided to look into alternative health options and was drawn to the stories of holistic pet service entrepreneurs and their transformative journey, overcoming obstacles, chasing their passion and creating a movement that has caused a ripple effect of positive change in the lives of their clients and pets around the world. Join me as I share the raw, inspiring journeys of these amazing entrepreneurs, their successes and failures. My name is Amrys Wang, and this is The Raw Entrepreneur. Welcome to The Raw Entrepreneurs, Season 1, Episode 21. Today's interview is with Dr. Margot Roman. She's a pioneer in the field of fecal matter transplant and a strong advocate for ozone therapy and other holistic modalities to help our companion animals. She's an activist who has controversial views that will not sit comfortably with either side of a debate on what to feed your dog. You don't have to agree with her views, but her methods have helped countless animals over the years and she is regarded as an authority in ozone therapy and fecal matter transplants and has given lectures all over the world. This is Dr. Margot Roman's origin story and her journey as an activist, holistic vet. My backstory in school was I was on an ambulatory call 42 years ago and the cow, uh, the farmer was too cheap to put in strong. So he put five inch nails through the planks. And so the cow charged and, and there were a thousand of these nails on the, on the fence along the gate and the cow pushed me against as she ran ran through the doorway which had a hundred nails and um impaled me on the nail and it caused it hit my pericardium and hit my sternum and caused a blood a clot like this big in my chest which was misdiagnosed by the doctors when i told them i said it's in my chest they said no it's your spleen and they insisted on taking my spleen out which i said no it's not on my spleen it's in my chest and these doctors basically, you know, sat me down and said, you know, you're, you're only a veterinary student. We are doctors. You are a veterinary student. And we know what's wrong with you. And you can't be stopped. You're going to bleed to death from this spleen that's going to rupture any second. And they basically put me under, you know, general anesthesia with one third of a functioning lung because all filled with fluid in the mass. And, uh, and my spleen was normal. And I had worked at Harvard summer before in pathology so I was really good at reading path reports and got path report before they did and it was a totally normal spleen and I kept telling them I'm not this is worse than it was and they they wouldn't listen to me and I just kept screaming I want a chest tap I need a chest tap and they said we're giving you more pain meds because you're in pain I said no I need a chest tap right now and they took off um, 1800 cc's the first day of fluid 
1,800 mLs, and then they took out another 1,200 the second day, and the third day they took out 500 and accidentally gave me a pneumothorax, and they saw this thing this big that they were looking for and said, uh, you know, you have a chondrosarcoma and you have three months to live. That was 42 years ago. Oh so you've had this experience very early in your career of doctors being so sure what they know and what they're doing and almost really, I should have died. I should never have survived the surgery from the first one. And I know in my heart that if, the, if I had died that night, they would have said she had two problems. She had this huge spleen, which wasn't huge, you know, but it would have, they would have said she had two problems. She needed the splenectomy and she needed this thoracic surgery and we couldn't do both at the same time. So, you know, it put distrust in my mind to looking at what conventional medicine does and not listening to the body. You know, not, they wouldn't listen to my story. They, they were so sure of themselves, so 100% sure, you know, you're being a fool. We, are, we know what we're doing. You don't know what's happening. I said, but I, I know, you know, so this, you know, you talk about a backstory the back that part this is literally my back story you know, like, <laughs> but it has made me you know figure i got to stand up for my life if i don't if i don't fight and stand up i they'll, they'd kill me i know i would have been dead if i didn't say i don't believe in what you're telling me i know what's wrong with me and you won't listen to me and um so you know when you said give me your backstory how did you get there well, i'm that i'm skipping backwards but it goes before that, but it, that really was a, a, a turning point to say, you know, wait a second, who do you think you are? You know everything just because you're a doctor? You don't know, you know barely anything, you know? And if you don't listen and gain information and wait for stories to be added to your, to your plate of knowledge, you're not going to move forward and be what I call a renaissance doctor. And a renaissance doctor is someone who knows the medicine that's out there and then is, is so willing to move and change and flex to, to find more information and keep finding more information because if they had all the information, nobody would be dying from cancer. You know, nobody would be dying from this COVID. Nobody would be there, you know, so we don't have, we have very little answers. And the more we know about the body and the microbiome and, you know, what we do with pesticides and what our body does when things are are distorted and changed. We we really don't know. We we are we are really very juvenile in the how the immune system you know takes care of itself. I learn so much from my clients. I learn so much from their pets and the animals that they live with and their relationships. That you know each time I have a case that affects me. And I mean I have one one now that I'm you know traumatized by you know with a dog. And I'll th tell you that case. But you know they're each of them have have their they they do they do my education more than the other doctors do that the animals are actually teaching you know and 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 thank goodness i have clients that trust me to keep trying different things and if i had to work in a practice where we could not try things i don't think my i would have a chance to to be able to change the fate of these animals if i had to just stick to my conventional therapeutics and drugs and surgery I think there'd be a lot more euthanasias in my, in my, you know, um, in my sympathy card notes, you know, to send out because, you know, we get more time with these animals and they do eventually die from the cancer. But some, I just lost one that, um, she, you know, she was, it's 
came to me with a mast cell tumor on her side. Uh, she's a um, Charlotte. She's a, a boxer mix. And, um, you know, not, she was, let's see, no, it was like six and a half, seven years of age. And uh, six, uh, like six, six years of age, I think. And, um, you know, and the owner, you know, didn't want to give up on her. And they said, you know, oh, we could, we'll, we, if you don't do chemo and radiation, you'll, you'll have about six months to be with the dog. If you do do chemo and rate, we did the surgery and you do chemo and radiation and we can probably give you about two and a half to three years with this mast cell tumor. And she did, she did one treatment of radiation and the dog had a terrible reaction to the anesthesia again and then had a burn on its body from the radiation. And she, she came to me and says, I don't, I don't want to do this to the dog. I mean, I don't want to go through all these radiation treatments and, you know, what, what can you how what can you offer me? I said, I have no idea. I said, what we'll do is support the dog. We'll do ozone. We'll do ultraviolet light therapy. We'll do all these different things, change its diet, put it on a raw diet, put, give it fresh foods, get its immune system working for it because she was eating, you know, poor quality food in my eyes. It was high quality for her, but poor quality for me. And she just passed away two weeks, two and a half weeks ago, eight years later. So she had eight years when they gave her less than six months if they didn't do surgery, which we never did more, never did more, not surgery, never did more any radiation and chemo. And uh, they gave her a max of three years. And she went to the oncologist. They wouldn't talk to her. They didn't want to know what I did. They were not interested at all. Not interested one minute. And she did that at the, I said, you got to get back in touch with them. Like two years after they said, that the dog would die and she went there and wrote him a letter and they don't care. They really don't want to know. They don't really care. And that to me is very disturbing. If you have one anecdotal case, it's, it's a case that they, they gave her that scenario that if you don't do this, your dog will be dead in six months and it lived eight years. So that's, that's really upsetting to me <laughs> that, that those are things that, that, you know, that, that really bother me, that it's not, it, people are not saying, well, I want to know, what, what was it? Could it have been this? Could it have been that? Should the diet, was the diet the whole thing? I have no idea, but you, you need to give it opportunity. So, but anyway, that's, that's just a case that just passed away. And I, you know, that is still in my heart right now. And I, and I learned a lot from her because it made me realize, you know, at this point that, you know, their threats of only doing radiation and chemo were wrong. You know, and it, it, I keep getting those reaffirmed all the time. You know, so anyway, but um, so if you want to, you know, talk about the question, the first story you had was, what is your backstory, and what what's the story of how you got to be where you are today? And I guess, you know, it all it all really is your family, you know, and what your family's dynamics and what you know what where you were in your family. But um, from the time I was a little kid, all I wanted to be was a veterinarian. I couldn't say it, but I wanted to be an animal doctor. And so I just took, that was, you know, I was bringing home animals all the time and, you know, with birds breaking wings and, and finding dogs that had mange and, you know, dogs that cut their paw and I'd find them, you know, and I'd bring them home and I'd fix them. And I was just always doing that as a little kid. And it was, you know, it was hard because each time something that, you know, like a neighbor's dog had a, had a cocker spaniel puppy that had a really bad heart defect and um, it, it ended up dying as a puppy. And I was just why can't we take care of this? Why don't we know how to take care of this? And, you know, and, and they're just stories after that, you know, each story, each of these animals 
when I look back and I started listing them, you know, and I can still remember them all, you know, what they all contributed to my, to my, you know, I can't, why, why can't we help this cat? Why can't we do this for this dog? Why can't we, you know, why, you know, and, and I questioned, you know, even back then when I had, uh, you know, I mean, I, I would talk about my first dog and then my father ha happened to grow up in an orphanage and he was, he probably would have been a veterinarian if he had been able to get the education that he needed in the college and stuff. But, um, but where at, at the orphanage, he used to get these injured animals and he would keep them up on a side of a hill that nobody would know they were, were there and he would never show up for dinner because he was too busy taking care of these animals and they would beat him up because he was bad because he didn't come home for dinner right and so he was that was sort of you know where i got sort of this kind of trying to nurture these animals um, but at the same time he also did not want me to have animals because in hindsight it was probably because he knew i'd be devastated when they were when they died because i was devastated once they would die but he would always take them away from me and make me take them you know, i'd find a an injured dog and I would take care of it and get it all better and it would be perfect. And then he'd, he'd take it to a shelter and give it to the shelter. And I would be like, no, you can't, I can't give this, you know. So that was a hard part of my childhood was having animals uh, that I really loved to be taken away and put into a shelter or given to another family. And I wanted the dog. I, I, I thought I should be able to keep the dog and he wouldn't let me do that. So, um, so I used to, go to neighbors' houses who had dogs. And I don't, I never met a kid that had, that for me, I would just want to go over there and brush their dogs and, and hold their cats. And, and they were like, sure, you want to come over and brush my cats? And then this one, one neighbor had like eight animals. And I would come over and spend the whole day brushing and taking care of all these <laughs> animals. And then, you know, she's like, you know, never met anybody who just would do that, right? And then I had this, I always wanted an Irish setter and there was a person in the neighborhood who had an Irish setter. And I used to go over after school like three times a week when I could get home, get there early enough. And I would walk the dog. And he, he said to me, I want to pay you. I'm going, no, I mean, I don't, you can't pay me. I, this is like, this is like my biggest joy all week. I get to go and walk your dog around the neighborhood, you know? So it's like, it's, I guess if you get deprived of something that you really, really, really want, you, you value it a lot more. And maybe that was what my father was trying to teach me to, to value um, these animals and, and, and know that they're, they're so important to people that have them in their lives. Um, and then when your animals get sick, you feel like, what else can you do for them? Should you just listen to the veterinarian and only do what they tell you? Um, and I realized they were many times completely wrong. Oh, and uh, I learned that with a, um, uh, uh, you know, I always wanted a horse and uh, we, our friends of ours had a farm that they had, uh, a, a, you know, a miniature uh, dwarf a pony. And so she was only a, like 23 inches. She was like this tall off the ground. She was like a miniature, but she had severely clubbed feet. And so um, they, they really couldn't take care of her in their, in their ranch. So, you know, they said we could, you know, get her, except we had to try to get the legs fixed. And we took her to the university and they wanted to you know, make boots and move her legs out. And I thought, that sounds really good. Let's make these leather boots. And she, I would put them on every day and stretch her ligaments. And, and then we went to a very fancy schmancy equine specialist in Ocala, who was like the lameness person. And he goes, oh no, we can open up that hoof and re, you know, put this epoxy in and rebuild the hoof and move it over. And, 
you know, a surgical procedure. I said, no, no, I really see if we can move it over gently. And he goes, oh no, we got to do this. And a week later she died from septic infection. And I was paralyzed. I was so sad. I couldn't go to school. I mean, I was just so de devastated. Um, and so, you know, here was the finest of the thing to tell you what to do with it. And, you know, you think that you want to do the best and it killed my horse. So that was when I was about 12. And so you start to realize, you know, every, these doctors don't know what they're talking about. And I had a, a wire hair fox terrier that got in, must've got into some kind of rat poisoning. Um, and, you know, I kept telling the people that it could have eaten something like that. And they were trying to convince me that it, this hemophilia was sort of, they were talking about hemophilia in, in dogs and uh, it convinced me that the dog had hemophilia. And I said, no, it, I, and so I, I actually, you know, like I was about, I think, 11 or 12 or 13, I think, and I went and I researched hemophilia and dogs and contacted Animal Medical Center and, you know, got them to send me all their papers and, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I'm going to prove you're wrong. There's, there's no, and there had never been hemophilia in any wire hair fox terrier line, you know, but they, the guy was treat said, no, it's, that's what it was. And I was saying, no, it's not, you know, so those are some of the, you know, the, the, the cases, but you know, one of the, the biggest things in, in more recent years has been my own horse, who is why I, I stood up and, and really made myself learn to do oxidative therapies in ozone is I had, um, I had rescued a horse who was going to be euthanized because he had such bad skin and he was 16 years old. And I paid to have him shipped up from Florida uh, for my daughter who was riding and so he, he, he was shipped up with all these beautiful, beautiful racehorses on this. It cost like $750 to ship him up on with the, this is, this was, let's see, 20, like 24 years ago, 23 years ago. And I, I paid to have him shipped up and um, uh, he, uh, you know, he came off the, the ship, the, 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 the dealer. And I had seen all these beautiful racehorses. And this was a 16-year-old horse that came up and he had no, barely any hair on his body with scabs all over him. And the guy said to me, you just paid me $750 to ship this horse. Is it your horse? I said, no, no, no. I, this friend of mine's horse and I'm going to take this. You know? And he was like, you're nuts. This, is, this should have gone to a glue factory. This horse is, is old and decrepit. And, you know, and he turned out to be the best horse and taught me so much because I, I didn't want to give up on him. And one of my friends said, why don't you do ozone on him? And I read a little bit about it and I didn't know anything about it. And I thought, you know what? He's got cancer now. It was like, he was fine till he was, like I said, I'm 16. We really got him improved until he was 20. And then he got cancer. And for six years, I treated him holistically for cancer and he was doing great. And then he got worse. And I started doing ozone to try to see if I could mitigate it. And uh, anyway, he got two and a half more years after Tufts said that he was dead from cancer and he was jumping in horse shows. So it was like, you know, is it, is, is it my desire to prove them wrong? It's my desire to say, why can't I try something else? Why do you have to tell me I have to euthanize him when I figured out another way to take care of him and not euthanize him? And he's not miserable. He's riding, three people are riding him and he's going on trail rides and he's eating and he's having a life and I have to euthanize them because you said so. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not, that's not how I want to practice medicine. So it's been a very big challenge and standing up to university, especially Tufts has been terrible 
they are not open to integrative medicine. And um, I was on faculty there for eight years and trying to, uh, I taught the students acupuncture and I was trying to give them, you know, I taught anatomy and they did not want this kind of care offered at the university. They, they want to be a big pharma university and the integrative topics are sort of downplayed and ignored and, and actually sort of discouraged, which is so sad. And so he lived two and a half years after Tufts said uh, he, was, he was dead. And that put up a whole conflict with me as a former faculty there uh, to stand up to them and say, no, I want to try something else. And so I know you're into the raw diet and that's where that whole story comes up too as well. And that, that would take another hour of talking about standing up to the university for raw diet because they, they're all funded by Hills, Perina, Imes and all the and Royal Canaan and they want to push those diets. And if you try to talk about these other diets, um, they threaten to arrest me because of it. And I went all the way to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts spending a quarter million of dollars to defend myself or to, to, to go after them and say, you cannot have, you know, stop people from saying, having freedom of speech at a university if you're getting federal funding and state funding um, and say, you can't talk about topics like this. So I lost because the university had so many, and they told me, they said, if we ever sued, sued us, we're gonna you know, uh, squish you like a bug because we have so much money in such deep pockets and can out hire attorneys and say terrible things about you. And they did exactly that. And, but I stood, still, stood, stood, still stood up to them and went with the ACL, I mean, ACLU and, and we lost because they had the eight top, seven top uh, lawyers in Boston standing up um, to fight for Tufts. So it was, it was, it's very hard because there is a big, you know, sadly, it's, it's a money issue. You know, it's how much money these universities are getting you know, from these big corporations and the medical schools and the dental schools and even the law schools. So if, you're, if your lawyers and your doctors are all intertwined with your big pharma, it's hard for you to get truth to come into, into the care of your health. And that's, I think, part of this whole corona thing is you can't have, you're not having the truth about what you can actually do to help yourself get stronger and empower you to take better care of yourself through nutrition and through, uh, you know, supplements and through, you know, um, just lifestyle as well as, you know, therapies like ozone, ultraviolet light and the ones that we know are antiviral. So that's part of it. So anyway, I can go through more details on all of these cases. Oh, um, so do you have any other questions at this point? <laughs> um, no, you, you know, I just love listening to, to, to whatever um, you're sharing because the, the wealth of experience that you have, um, you know, it sort of shows how serious the problem is all the way back to, you know, when you were a student, you know, as, as a vet student, you know, um, even as a child, you know, that, you know, you, you sort of realize that doctors aren't God, you know, they, they think they know everything. They are supposed to know everything, you know, that, that aura that they have. And everyone assumes that trust the doctor, the doctor knows best. That's what, you know, we're always told when we're young. And, and yet, you know, through your own life experience, even as a wee one, as a little child, you know, and going through the system and, and trying to, you know, become a vet yourself because of your love for animals, you know, um, 
you sort of realize that the authorities aren't always right. They don't know everything. You know, even when... Right. It's, it, it is, it's true. I mean, I always just tell this joke about, you know, uh, St. Peter, you know, they were at the, the pearly gates and, and every, you know, um, everybody's standing in line and these, these, this doctor's standing in line, he's waiting and, waiting and he's, you know, tapping his foot and he's like, he's, I have never had to, you know, I, and, and, he, and he sees this guy in a white coat come running through the line and just breaks through the line. And uh, so he goes up to say, he goes, you know, he's, I'm a doctor, you know, I've never had to wait. I, I, you know, I'm a doctor. I should be able to get through here right away. He says, and he says, well, you have to wait in line like everybody else. He says, but that doctor just went through. Uh, he goes, that's not a doctor. That's God. He thinks he's a doctor. <laughs> so, so that was always my, you know, like, uh, you know, so that's really, you know, how, how, I, you know, you, you, you realize how human beings, they are just human and they have faults and they have, they question their intelligence. They feel they have egos. They don't want their feet stepped on. And when I tried to explain to about 2008, I got a respiratory, and that's one of the reasons I, I am, I'm, you know, protecting myself at home is I got uh, upper respiratory infection and I couldn't breathe at all. I mean, I can't breathe well because my diaphragm is paralyzed. So it's really hard for me to expand my lungs anyway. So even when I get a cold, it's hard. So thinking if I got COVID, I would get into the hospital, bringing my ozone generator and my UVB machine, please treat me. And they go, oh no, <laughs> we're not doing that to you. And I literally couldn't breathe anymore. So, um, so I, I, you know, I, otherwise I would be knocking on the doors of the hospital saying, please try this on some of these patients, you know, try this on some of these patients, mm -hmm. but it's, it's hard to, to, you know, I, but this one pulmonologist that I, I talked to and I told him how I had navigated my asthma through homeopathy and treated myself for poison ivy with homeopathic remedies. And when the poison ivy went away, my asthma disappeared for 15 years. So I treated myself with the homeopathic remedies. And I tried to explain to him how I had done some of that with acupuncture. And he looked at me straight in the face. And it was so hard for me to tell him anything because it was so hard for me to even breathe. And he looked me straight in the face after I, I spent 15 minutes showing him what I had done with acupuncture and how I'd gotten off all my asthma medication and had only flare-ups two or three times a year and used an inhaler. And then when I started doing homeopathy, that was using the inhaler three times a day and being on medication. And I went to that to, to three or four times a year with acupuncture. And then I went to homeopathy for 15 years, not using the inhaler. And I tried to explain it to him. And he looked at me straight in the face and he says, unless I can read it in the Wall Street Journal and I can make money on it, I don't give a damn of what you just said. That's really that pulmonology at this hospital. And I went, he's not a doctor. Because a doctor is an educator. A doctor would be like, wow, that is pretty cool. Let, can you tell me what you did? Instead of totally, I could just see his eyes going, loo, 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 you know, looney tuning and, mm -hmm. and tuning it out and, and telling me I need to be on steroids and, you know, Simbacort for the rest of my life. And that was, you know, 2008 and I haven't taken any of those. And I just am very careful of what I eat and how I breathe and, you know, and I'm not going to go out in this, in this pandemic and get my lungs weakened, you know, by, by the virus, you know, so, but it's hard because when you have doctors that are in charge of anything and they're not willing to listen to your story, 
they're not going to learn. They're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And for them, it's fine because they didn't read it in the Wall Street Journal and uh, they're not making money because they, they, there isn't as much money to make when you give somebody, you know, guide them to eat the right things and guide them to take nutraceuticals and guide them to, to take homeopathics because they're just not going to, they think they, they think they're useless and, and have no value. So, um, but that's where, you know, um, uh, so either, you know, there's a lot of parts about what your family drives you. And my mother was always a big motivator. You can be whatever you want to be. You know, you can do whatever you want to do. And my father was, no, women don't need to be veterinarians and we don't have the money for you to go to vet school. And when I applied to vet school in, in, in pre-vet in 1971, and I should have never sent the picture I sent in. And I had done um, like a Miss Junior, Miss Pageant, and Miss Citrus County, and one like Miss Personality and Talent and stuff like that. And so I sent this beautiful picture of myself that doesn't even look like me because it's such a good picture. And they sent me a, a they sent me a letter back when I applied to undergrad and, and told them I want to be a veterinarian at Cornell. They said you only want to come here to find a husband who's a veterinarian, so we're not we don't want to even look at your application. And I was, I was so, I cried. I cried. I like, are you kidding me? They think that that's the only reason I want to be a vet, is go to vet school is to find a husband. And back in 1971, women were not veterinarians. They used to have one token woman in veterinary school. Now the vet schools are about 90% women. But before it was, you know, one, they had one woman and it was, you know, the interview was, oh, you're, pro you're going to take a spot for a man and you're never going to practice. You're just going to have kids. And nobody, you know, and so when, when, when I started having children, I mean, I was in labor with my last one, broke my water and said, I got to finish this morning first before I, before I go to the hospital. Cause I was like, I am not stopping, <laughs> you know, because they, 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 they said, I'm going to stop practicing when I have kids, you know? So it, 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 you know, it was challenging for my kids because they probably would have said, you know, you should have been home more and taking care of us more, but they all came out. Okay. You know, so it's just, it's, it, it, it's what you, you know, your passion is to do something and, and, you know, help these animals and, and help these families that have animals, they love them. I know how much I love mine and how much I would do for them. So you, you sort of want to do the same for them. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. I, I think, I think a lot of education today and what it used to be like in you know in the classical past like in greece and rome even in ancient china where you know the idea of education and learning where you have you know your left brain and right brain it's mm -hmm. all about exploring new things you're an explorer you know the great unknown and you are learning new things and you're challenging your you know big eye aha moments and and, you know, you're just going through that frontier and you're learning and experimenting and taking notes down and new things keep coming up. So that's where we learn and grow as a human being. Unfortunately, you know, um, what you're saying is really, it's all about money now. Um, you know, the pharmaceuticals, the big pharma, they, you know, they want to control what comes out. So they, they set in place, you know, a system where, okay, we want to push our products. So this is the framework. You know, and um, all of you medical professions, you got to go through this system of education and all this paper and writing. I realized I, I used to be very naive. I used to think, you know, 
um, doctors and scientists were all like very altruistic, you know, and, and, you know, um, there are, there are still people that are like that. There are still wonderful. And I, I feel very fortunate because I go to conferences, um, you know, functional medicine conferences and uh, ozone conferences and, um, uh, you know, there's ozone without borders and there's, you know, frontiers in ozone therapy. And what I consider Renaissance doctors are people that want to know more, that they're not willing to just swallow the Kool-Aid, you know, and, and, and say, this is what I, this is all I need to know is what I was taught here and this continuing education. And, you know, and like one of the big things, you know, which, which is what we've been doing and you were talking about earlier is with the microbiome. So, you know, I felt I, I grew up in a very whole, more holistic family where, you know, my parents didn't let us have sugar. They didn't let us have soda. They, you know, they, they made sure we were eating whole wheat bread and, and not having a lot of candy and chemicals and things like that. And so that was very normal for me to, to not eat a lot of processed food because they just didn't eat processed food. And so, you know, I was used to doing that. So, you know, when I, when I started feeding my dogs and doing a raw diet, I had a client that, um, you know, that was, this is all, this is about 32 years ago. I think before my, right when my daughter was born and, you know, was feeding a raw diet and she came in with two chicken thighs for her her Portuguese water dog that she had. And was like, really? She goes, yeah, I'm feeding a raw diet. And I was like, wow. I said, you know, I want to watch your dog grow because I don't know much about this. So I'm going to just use you as a test case and just see how great your dog looks. Dog looked great. Like great teeth and clean teeth and energy and grew and the bones grew nicely and everything. And no diarrhea. The people didn't get sick, you know, and all that. So I... I decided to start feeding my dogs more of a whole food diet because I was always feeding good quality food, but you know, but not to that level. And then when I started feeding a raw diet, I started, I took it on when I got my the great great grandmother of my puppies, and um, and she was she was a puppy that was that I that I thought I was getting a puppy that they had to find out that they had that was six or seven months old, and they the woman changed her mind and said I want to give you this five week old puppy that that um, the mother couldn't take care of because the vet so you can take care of it. So I took this five week old puppy. And um, so I was told that she had, you know, OFA excellent hips. I mean, OFA good hips, you know, from the mother. And, you know, I got this little tiny puppy and it had Giardia. And I, you know, I, I, you know, started to treat it and I didn't want to over vaccinate because I was just starting to understand more about vaccines and stuff. And so I, she was my sort of test case. So I took this dog who, I found out my father was fair and the mother was barely good. And I said, I don't, you know, I don't want a dog who's dysplastic. So I did nutrition and I did cross training and, you know, and, and got her into good shape and she was turned out to be OFA excellent. And so that was my, my, you know, source of my initial dog that I figured I got to improve that breed. And so I'm now at the fifth generation of raising these standard poodles organically without pesticides, uh, you know, with whole foods. And, um, and so that's been my transition is going through, but in, in, and not realizing until about 15 years ago that I've been protecting their microbiome, you know, and their microbiome is and that was getting to be in the science is talking about the microbiome and talking about fecal transplants 
And so I kept saying for about four or five years, I said, I'm going to do a fecal transplant with my dogs. My dogs have got good microbiomes. I'm going to do it. And so my first case was um, this dog, Stovin, who had been diagnosed at Angel Memorial with severe irritable bowel and um, had Addison's disease. And the people had already spent $20,000 on the dog. And from nine weeks of age, he'd been on metronidazole. And he had chronic diarrhea. His, he was so weak. Um, he, had been, he had had bloody diarrhea for almost two months and been so sick. And they wanted to do exploratory surgery to figure out why he was bleeding so badly from the rectum that they couldn't control the, the diarrhea. So this dog came in and he, they could, he did, couldn't even, he couldn't walk. He was so weak. They had to carry him in. He was like a rack of bones. And, um, you know, he's, he'd been on antibiotics for, for three years. And I thought, he's got no microbiome left. This dog is, is so we, we tested him for Plechner syndrome, which he did have, and he had it on top of the Addison's disease. And so he had Plechner and he had, uh, and we, we you, you can see that the pictures, there's, I have some pictures of Stoven. I didn't get pictures in his first day coming in, and I should have, because he, was, he didn't even look like a dog. He, you know, he was so emaciated but you can see how he became the strapping big dog after the fecal transplant. So he did better with all our holistic stuff and the ozone and the acupuncture. And then he went like this after the fecal transplant, just straight up into health. And so that was my first fecal transplant. That was in 2012, early, like the beginning of 2012. And so we've done probably, you know, we've probably about 10,000 fecal transplants, whether we're shipping them out to other vets and sending them our dog's microbiome. But to that point, the university was condemning me, you know, in this lecture in 2005, how you cannot feed a raw diet. And the lecture that I was going to was the hazards of feeding raw food, why you should never feed a raw diet to your pets, because you'll kill them. And I, at that time in 2005, I'd say 70% of my clients were feeding a raw diet. And so I wanted, to, I called and I said, is, do you need to know who's coming? And they said, no, it's open to everybody. Please come. It's open to the public. Bring whatever, whoever you want. And I'm dressed in a suit, ready to, you know, learn something. And they threatened to arrest me and put me in jail for going to a lecture. I'm like, where are we? Are we in the United States? This doesn't feel like the United States anymore. But, you know, you wonder why there's so much power in these dog food companies and these big pharma companies. Um, and they, 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 I want them to do research. We want research, but it's not to you know, control us all. It's to give us the best knowledge. And now with the microbiome, which is very exciting, um, you know, I now speak at a lot of microbiome conferences and there's millions of dollars being spent on developing probiotics and microbiomes and you know, it has become, you know, now, you know, even Clorox is investing millions in microbiome studies because wow. that's the new frontier in medicine. So all, there's so many companies now that have, you know, when, when you try to talk about probiotics in 2004, 2005, 2006, you were basically nuts, you know, and I'd been using probiotics for 20 years before that. I mean, I was always giving my animals some kind of prebiotic or probiotic or something. And that was like odd, you know, that people would do that. Uh, but that was what I learned from doctors who were nutrition, who were like holistic nutritionists and humans, that they were doing that with people. So why would we do it on the dogs, right? So, um, but that's where, um, you know, it, it's just, it's hard because 
now, even the university, they still don't want you to give a raw diet. They feel like you cannot, it's too much bacteria. Well, I'm selling poop. You know, how much bacteria is in that? You know, it's, it's you know, you're hoping there's 500 species and 1,000 subspecies, but the, the types of cases that we see and the changes in their health is so wonderful. It, I mean, animals that have had diarrhea for two years in three days have no diarrhea. You know, that is beautiful. You know, animals that, you know, I, I can give you case after case after case, and it's just so rewarding. And, you know, in Singapore, you know, to find uh, the animals that have really healthy microbiomes, maybe some of the people that are listening to your show that have, you know, generations that they've kept away from, you know, processed foods that are full of glyphosate, because most dog foods in the United States, and if they're manufactured in the United States, they're full of Roundup. Uh, because it's so ubiquitous in our food chain. And it, was, it has a patent for as an antibiotic for the intestinal tract. So uh, if you're feeding that predominant food in, in your diet, um, and most of the raw diets are, are animals that have been raised on, on you know, genetically modified corn, soy, and wheat that is full of glyphosate. So it's really very, very disturbing to me. And I, I'm not, you know, I, at this point, what I'm trying to do is, uh, and it has to happen. It has to happen. We're, there's, no, there's no way of avoiding it. We have to go more plant-based for our pets. And that's been my new push is doing a, a raw food-based, uh, plant-based dog food. So my new generation here is about 90% plant-based. So wow. I make their own dog food. I, it's all organic because the number of millions of animals that suffer and die to feed our dogs and cats is, if you care about animals as sentinel beings, you know, the, they're, they're, you, to kill those animals to, so we can feed our animals and ourselves is just, to me, it's, it's heartbreaking. And now in the United States, where they've, had, they've had an outbreak in the Smithfield um, uh, you know, the, the swine uh, slaughterhouses and the processing plants. And they, they were talking about how many millions of, of pigs they, they process every year and how they can't bring them in. So these animals are stocking up and they have to be, a, a X, I think, 350 pounds or to 400 pounds to go through the processing plant. And if they don't, they can't put them through the processing plant. So they were going to euthanize them. And you think about all these animals, these, you know, and pigs are, can be just as intelligent as most dogs if you raise them properly and they understand you. So, you know, I know you're, you're doing a thing about raw, but doing, my dogs are not 100% vegan. They get about, um, about 8% animal protein or animal-based, whether bone or, um, and that's, that's from hunting season venison, so mostly. Um, and they do get some uh, you know, processed that is not, that I don't know the source of, you know, which is, I'm, it's supposed to be less glyphosate and all that. But, you know, but if I'm feeding them food from animals that are eating genetically modified food, that quality is, is not going to be there that was in our food chain 50 years ago. So they may be damaging more of their microbiome by eating that food. So um, that's just something to talk about too, but that's another whole lecture <laughs> but you know um so you're growing your own organic um plant matter um vegetables no 
Well, no, I buy, we have, do you have Whole Foods in Singapore? Do you have Whole uh, Foods? No, we don't have Whole Foods. grocery store. We, well, we have a few um, organic Whole Food um, supermarket specialties, but it's not mainstream. Um, it's actually still quite expensive still. Um, you know, it's still expensive here too. It, but if you make your own, it's time expensive. Um, it's expensive for the materials. Um, and it is, I, I, you know, my dogs, I, I, I want to, I feel guilty about it, probably eat better than I'd say probably 60% of the people in the United States, you know, eat they, my dogs. And that, that makes me sad that, you know, I'm, but we belong to a, what community sustainable agriculture. So starting in another week or two, we'll be getting a lot of fresh, you know, kale and broccoli and produce and stuff like that, that I can put into the food. Um, and I, I make, make my own food. Um, let me just make sure it's not a kid. Oh. Um, so it's not a kid. <laughs> I can let it ring. Um, so, um, but anyway, that, that part of it is important to, to just put that into your thought process mm. as you're, you know, promoting a, a raw diet. If we can do reduce, what we're talking about is reducetarian is to, if you're going to use meat, use it as, as much the minimum you need to use to make it to be something that, that, you know, there's certain B vitamins and there's certain things, but there are now companies that are making plant-based dog foods. And the issue is you want them to be organic because if you're damaging the microbiome with the glyphosate, you want to make sure that you're not damaging, you know, species that you need to have that help the animal, you know, have a healthier life. Um, so it's, but it's a lot of work when I make my food, like I made it last Friday and um, I usually make it every two weeks and make enough for four dogs and two cats. And the cats are predominant carnivores, um, but they still eat some of this vegetable mixture, which they don't relish it. They don't like it, but they get to eat it. Um, and my dogs, if you offered them a bowl of meat and a bowl of my stuff, there'd be no way they'd go to my stuff. They would go to the meat. So my dogs don't love their food, but they clean their bowls. They completely clean their bowls. And so um, the, the mixture in, that I have that I use, um, like last week I put cooked up, um, most, most of it's raw, but I do cook um, a little bit the squash, um, the you know butternut squash and the um, sweet potato, just so it, because it, it's, it, it's easier to, to put it through the Cuisinart. Otherwise it's just so hard to grind it. And then I cook up a big, huge pot of quinoa and uh, a little bit of millet and teff and uh, oats. Um, and I, I have a big pot of the, the grains and they're mostly seed because quinoa is more of a seed um, as is the, the teff and the um, millet. And I cook that up and, and, then I and then I cook up, soak overnight uh, different types of beans, garbanzas and black beans are the predominant ones, but some lima beans, um, um, uh, you know, kidney beans or whatever. And I soak them and I put them with kombu and let them, let them, you know, grow for about a 24 hours. So they're sprouted. So that reduces some of the, um, the problem with digesting of it, uh, for dogs. And, and then I cook them and make sure they're really well cooked. And so I'll take, you know, I'll, I'll take up my vegetable mixture, which is the squash and the sweet potato, and then I'll have kale. This last one, I'm just remembering kale, cilantro, parsley. Um, uh, let's see, I put uh, bok choy, frozen broccoli, 
string beans, um, summer squash, a big cucumber, uh, celery, and carrots. Wow. And then the, uh, then the fruits, were, I usually do fresh fruits, but this time of year is hard and with the COVID, so they had frozen, everything was organic, frozen blueberries, papaya, pineapple, um, apples, pears, and there was one other one. Pears, blueberries, and some cherries, the frozen cherries I had. So I mix them all together and then I take a scoop of this, you know, a scoop of the vegetable mixture, a scoop of the fruit mixture, a scoop of the sweet potato mixture, a scoop of two, two, two or three scoops of the quinoa, one scoop of the oats, and then two, um, uh, one big scoop of the beans. And then I'll have, I have other beans too, like azuka beans or mung beans or stuff like that. And then I puree it all together with some, some chia and I, you know, and at, then when I make it up, I add other nutritional products. So I add a, this called Nupro and then I add taurine. Uh, and I, I'm going to be building a PowerPoint presentation with the more detail. There's one on my website that's from like four years ago, which is pretty similar, but I'm going to build a new one soon, I hope. Oh, <laughs> so wow. everybody can see. But I, what I'm really trying to do is give a lot of fresh vegetables, you know, and puree them so that it breaks down the cell wall. And I, we do put digestive enzymes, Prozyme, so that it helps them break it down. Plus we're using the papain and the app which helps with the digest the bromelain and the papain and so you know digesting helping it digested and um you know and then they 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 love it you know um when they have nothing else but that to eat <laughs> something else they would love it you know but they wait for it and i put some nutritional yeast in and hemp hemp powder um i put flax oil hemp oil and the, the only animal product i put into it is the Carlson's fish oil, which is a really high quality fish oil. So I'm putting that in there. So it's it's bal it's balanced. I haven't like actually calculated every single cup of everything, but it's got a lot of good you know, phytonutrients. It's got you know protein, and with all the protein that's in the be beans plus the protein in the um, hemp, and you know they're all worried about the cardiomyopathy with the grain-free diets, which is predominantly like lentils and stuff. But they haven't looked at the fact that most of those lentils and chickpeas are grown with glyphosate. And that's probably why these animals are getting myopathy is because they're not absorbing nutrients because their guts are so distorted from the high amount of glyphosate within those beans and the grains, I mean, the beans that are in there. So but we're getting off topic. I think it, it goes back to the, the, the whole question of how clean is your food source, be it um, animal, you know, animal source or vegetable matter, you know, it's about how clean is your food and the nutrients that is inside. And when you talk about the, the vegetable, which I love, cause I'm, I love eat, I, I eat meat, but you know, I tend to have a more plant-based diet and I love mm -hmm. all sorts of greens and vegetables, you know, and mm -hmm. it goes back to the question of your soil. How healthy is your soil? Oh, absolutely. So you know, our, our soil in the United States was beautiful. And I, again, you're, you're growing, you know, I don't know how, I, I haven't never been to Singapore, but I, you know, I know it's, it's, I've, well, it's we had zero, congested. well, Singapore's <laughs> a tiny, tiny country and we actually rely on export, uh, imports coming in. We don't really have a big agricultural, um, 
uh, culture like in the United States or in Europe because we don't really have that landmass. So mm-hmm. uh, modern day Singapore, we rely a lot on imports from around the world, and it's you know, and it's all economics. So we're talking about bulk ordering and bringing down the price. So yes, we have you know. Um, food coming in from <clears throat> Indonesia, Malaysia, around our, our neighborhood in Southeast Asia, but obviously mm-hmm. from Australia, from China, because that is a big, you know, they're really close to us and they're a huge country. So we take in, you know, imports on agriculture, food from all around the world, even from the United States. And it's always mm-hmm. about dollars and cents. You know, yes, yes. we can bring in the best. It is. You know, but it's always about money. And for the man on the street who's maybe earning X amount of dollars, it's always going to be, well, what can I feed my family on a budget, you know? And, you know, we don't go hungry and, you know, make do. No, it is. And most, and most of the world, I mean, more than most of the world, you know, it's probably 70% of the world has to eat like that. Yeah. You know, and, you know, even more than that, maybe 80% of the world. Um, so I, again, I feel guilty when I do all this, you know, healthy stuff for my animals and we should be giving this to children in countries that don't have food, but, um, you know, and, and, um, you know, so it's, it's looking at that component. But if I think if, if people would not grow animals for food and they only grow plants, we'd have plenty of food. We'd have plenty of land to grow food. You know, for every pound, it was it for every pound of meat, you have to grow at least 10 pounds of, of vegetable which could feed you could feed somebody so much more than the meat you know so it's like why are we only focused on you know animal agriculture as our and and the amount of pollution that comes from animal agriculture it, they they say if, you, if people stopped eating meat today that climate change would change tomorrow exactly tomorrow because there's so much pollution and uh and petroleum use and um to 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 process meat and eat meat so how, how, it's just an effort. Yeah. Um, how long have you been feeding your dogs this, um, your, your diet? Well, Vienna, who's the mother, is six, and she was raised on about a 60% plant-based diet. Okay. okay? And her puppies are 90%, and they're two. Okay. So two, two of the puppies were studied at MIT in Boston, um, and they all were studied and their microbiomes were studied. I don't know what the, the outcome is. They were living across the lake from me with an MIT professor. And I was making their food and we were collecting their microbiome for about 20 months. And she, I, she, I just got them back like three months ago. Right. So I don't know what her data is showing, but right. she was very curious to look at how the microbiome uh, shifts and changes with, um, with the plant-based diet because yeah. she herself is plant-based as well. So to look at how healthy can a dog be, I mean, these dogs have so much energy. I mean, they run and run and run and run and run and, you know, and their ears are clean and their eyes are clean and they're, you know, they, I mean, they're poodles, so they have to have their faces trimmed, but, you know, it's, it's, it's so much, you know, to give healthier food, you know, and, and not have to deal with, other components of skin issues and stuff like that because it 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 there there's i mean i don't know about where you are in singapore but animals here in the united states are really sick <laughs> they all have skin allergies have you know have, here. You know, um i i would say ma- 
Um, in Singapore, we don't actually have true integrative or holistic vets like yourself. Um, I would say all our vets are conventionally trained. They do, maybe mm-hmm. some clinics might offer um, holistic modalities like acupuncture, you know, um, TCM, uh, traditional mm-hmm. Chinese medicine. But if you're talking about truly holistic and integrative and <clears throat> looking at nutrition as the foundation, when you're, when you're trying to heal the body, like a functional uh, medicine approach, um, we don't really have that. I mean, like every clinic that I've been to in Singapore, they're all self-prescription diet. And, you know, it's the same thing. It's, it's still very old school in the approach, in the way of thinking, you know, um, annual vaccinations. I think now there are a few clinics that are now, um, you know, selling the idea like, oh, well, instead of doing annual vaccinations, you can do tighter testing. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's you know, good. Well, you should encourage them. We started doing titers in 1993. Mm. Um, we have not had a vaccinal break. So for 27 years now, we have not been vaccinating on an annual basis. Yeah. And so that's amazing. Um, it, it's not. And I, you know, and when I first stopped doing the vaccines and I skipped them, I, I was really scared. Because I thought everybody said, you're going to have all these dogs dying from parvo and distemper and they're going to all, you know, just croak on you and you're going to, you're, you're going to lose them all over the place. And, you know, I, I had studied with Richard Pitcarn and I was studying doing homeopathy and, you know, he kept saying, you don't need all these vaccines. And I, I wasn't sure I really trusted what he said. So, you know, we started doing titers and like uh, the grandmother, um, the great grandmother of these puppies she had um, one distemper shot in her life and one parvo shot in her life and two rabies. She still had antibodies for the distemper and parvo that were still really high when she passed away at 15. Wow. And so okay. are, your, and, are your puppies vaccinated at all? Yeah. So the, no, they're vaccinated. So they've had one plain distemper, one plain parvo. We gave them the distemper shot and the parvo shots at like 16 weeks and 20 weeks, but I kept them isolated. I didn't go take them to a local park and want them to get exposed. Waited till they were older puppies and then gave them the rabies shot at about five and a half months. And then another rabies shot a year later. So they're in their three year status now with their vaccines. Uh, the, the distemper on one of the puppies, on, on um, uh, um, one of them is, um, Eliza, her, she's a non-responder to distemper parvo. I can't, we've done it and we gave her a booster and she didn't respond. So she's a non-responder. So what does that mean? Does that put her at risk? If I gave her a vaccine every year and she's a non-responder, I'm not doing anything. I'm wrecking her up more. I keep giving her, you know, more vaccines. So my plan is not to vaccinate her, um, you know, keep her healthy the way we're doing it. Um, and, um, you know, but she has a, the other one, whether I think it's parvo, she's fine, but the distemper is lower. I can't remember. It's got to go back into her records. But otherwise, the other ones are fine. They have still have good antibodies from that set of shots. So, you know, and the mother still has antibodies from her set of shots. Okay. That were six years. Okay. We don't, we don't have rabies in Singapore. So um, we don't, we don't. Um, rabies shot is not required locally unless you are relocating and uh, you're traveling with your animal out of the country. So internationally, they all require rabies shot as part of the protocol, you know, certification. But uh, within Singapore, um, 
touch wood. Well, we haven't had rabies for, I don't know, as long as I can remember. So officially, we are rabies free. That's great. That's great. Yeah, we still have rabies in the United States. So that's why, you know, I understand where we, as a public health, we really need to give animals a rabies vaccine and establish antibodies. And the whole point is that if they've established antibodies, why are we giving them another vaccine? I mean, that doesn't make any health decision anything better, uh, but that's the standard of care. So if you give, if they get a rabies vaccine, some states still require them to get them every year. And most states have worked, you know, worked to the three year. But if they have really high antibodies at three year, why would you give them another one? That's where many of us in that are trying to show the science behind it. You know, if antibodies, why are you giving them a vaccine? I got vaccinated in vet school for rabies in 1974. All veterinarians get vaccinated for rabies. And um, I got vaccinated. And they told us in an assembly in 1974 that we need to um, get ourselves titered every other year. When and only when our titer has dropped, we should get a booster. If we get a booster when we still have a high titer, we can actually have an autoimmune issue with ourselves, which autoimmune is, is cancer, is lupus, is whatever. You know, your immune system starts to misfire if you're stimulating it and you don't need it. And as veterinarians, what do we tell people? Get another booster. It's been two, three years, you need another booster. And so I've been titered since 1974, every other year. I still have antibodies 46 years later. Wow. Wow. And never had a booster. Yeah. So what, should I have just blindly every three years given myself a booster? Would I even be alive? <laughs> you know? um, have more so help again, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I, I have, you know, because of my, my paralyzed diaphragm, I'm at a risk. But that's one of the reasons when I found ozone therapy and I, you know, because of my, my condition, um, I have always been looking for ways to be prepared. And I ended up taking bioterrorism and preparation stuff in 1999 and was the only vet trained in Massachusetts for bioterrorism preparedness when 9-11 hit. And so I was already learned about anthrax and serum and nerve gas and, and all these different, you know, different uh, bioterroristic things that were used and was able to share that knowledge with other veterinarians. But because of that, I was, I've always been interested in this because I was, I was told as a kid, a kid was told when I graduated vet school that I should not be a veterinarian because I have, I put my body at risk because I don't have a spleen and I have paralyzed diaphragm. So I, I could die from salmonella. I could die from E. coli. I shouldn't even handle raw meat because I can get salmonella and E. coli. And I shouldn't have a bird because I could get salmonella from the bird. So for so many years until, you know, I finally got myself a bird that I've, you know, I've had them for almost 20 years. Um, but I think it, all these animals helped contribute to my ability to protect myself better because I was, they were in my house and I was hugging them and kissing them and, you know, built up my immune system um, after my splenectomy where I was on antibiotics for seven years. They said, if you're going to be with animals, you have to live on antibiotics. Wow. And I was like, it doesn't make sense. And I was so sick and I was constantly having allergic reactions to them and angioedema and I was a mess. And I, I finally, you know, when I discovered homeopathy and I could, felt like, wait a second, I have another tool. I don't have to think about, 
you know, doing this stuff to myself, you know, so, uh, but I really credit the animals for helping me develop a stronger microbiome just because of their stronger microbiome. And you're with that and you're, you know, you're, you're symbiotic in your family dynamics, you know, so. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I think so, you know, it, it, it's, you know, what, what you say and what you describe is so, you know, it mirrors a lot to do with modern day society as well. Um, you know, even with the human component, like, you know, um, children are vaccinated, you know, like, nobody's business now um and i i can remember i had a a girlfriend of mine who had cancer and she was in her 30s and um you know she you know uh she survived it you know but she had a double mastectomy and everything and then when her mom had cancer it was pancreatic and you know at that time by that time, I was reading up more about the microbiome and, you know, the importance of probiotics and everything and, you know, trying to, like, uh, uh, reduce the exposure of toxins. And, you know, I, I sort of mm-hmm. sent her some, some information to read because, you know, I, I really loved her and her mom. Her mom was, you know, a lovely lady. And, you know, I said, you know, maybe you should think about improving the, the gut health, the microbiome health, you know, to help fight this, right. uh, what's going on. because. Right. But she's a very, you know, because she went through the conventional method for cancer treatment. And they don't, they're not going to. Yeah. But and, yeah. And her, her doctor, her specialist is of that mindset. So, you know, she's like, like oh, no, probiotics, don't, don't do that. You know, it's not good for you. And this is a couple of years ago only. Mm. You know, it's sadly, really, yeah. but they don't, it's because they're. They're not willing to look into it. They'll read one paper that negates it. Yeah. No good. And you have people that don't know very much about something. You know, there was an article about ozone for um, using for COVID. And there was some guy who made a comment who happened at Harvard. He didn't know nothing about ozone. He's never, t- I've never seen him at any ozone conference or any ozone lecture. And he's making comments and he has no background. You know, he, he reads one little statement and suddenly he wants to tout his, his thoughts and hasn't studied it, hasn't used it. I mean, we've done 70,000 treatments in our clinic. If I was so, if it was so dangerous and so bad and so, you know, why would I keep using it if it was, if animals that were told that they, 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 there was nothing else that they could do or had such bad skin conditions or had chronic problems and it went away with the ozone, why would I want to tell people not to use it? You know, we try to empower people to get ozone generators themselves and, and have them in their homes to make water, to, you know, give your, if you're coming down with a cold, I have a few clients that haven't, and they felt they were coming down with the upper respiratory and they, they put it in, in their ears with a stethoscope and run it and drink water and the next morning they're fine. No, did they have COVID? I don't know, but whatever it was, knocked it right out. So don't, why, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, it's not going to hurt you and it, you know, it's very inexpensive. It's not, I don't know who's making them in, in Singapore. There may be, are there people making ozone generators in Singapore? I know O3Vets went over there, went to Singapore, I think, and did a lecture series um, there. But they're, you know, they're made in China. A lot yeah. of the ozone generators are. There's a bunch made in, in, in two different ones made in the U.S. I mean, in, in you know, North well, and uh, um, North. Well, I'm not very familiar with ozone, um, hence why I was looking for you. But I mean, my understanding, like Googling, you know, and checking at the uh, Singapore scene, it's 
there are some specialists who, who offer ozone therapy for the humans, but right. no, I can't seem to find any for vets. And to be honest, I've, I've never heard of it, you know, um, being an animal rescuer myself here in Singapore. Um, mm-hmm. I've never heard of a vet offering ozone therapy. Well, I was teaching, you can ask Peter, there was, there's someone else, we, I think it was from, she was from Singapore, who I was teaching the vet how to do ozone. But on my on website, I have the course that I teach for the, um, I, I'm going to be teaching a new one, hopefully, if, if we don't get canceled because of COVID. Uh, at the Chi Institute, we're going to be doing a 16-hour ozone certification course that he's going to film. And so it can be spread, you know, internet, because he does a lot of, of, of education of veterinarians through the Chi Institute. Um, so that's something that'll be going on in November, hopefully. Um, but the other part of it is that I have one on my website, on the MASH Vet website, which is an eight-hour course on ozone, and that they can, um, you know, pay to watch that and, and it, it's I used to have CE that was uh, with it but we don't do CE with it now um, but it's eight hours and it's you know it's, it gives you a lot of cases and how to do it um, and our website has a lot of stuff too on it too as well yeah I think I think I think the general most people here don't really know much about ozone therapy because it's not common and I think when mm-hmm. you use the word ozone they will think about the hole in the sky and the ozone exactly. that even kill you you know um, you know, and I think every time I Google, they'll tell you like, don't, you know, don't use ozone generators and, and, and uh, purifiers because they're dangerous, you know, uh, they will poison you, it's toxic, you know. Um, so I think there's um, a lot of misconception, you know, like what is the myth uh, and so, what's the real? Yes, yeah, so when it comes to that kind of, you know, I, we want to start using medical O3 and then people don't use the word ozone and go, oh, it's the ozone layer. Well, you know, in the, the truth about what ozone is, is when you have an electrical or ultraviolet light in the atmosphere and it hits oxygen, it produces a very simple O3, it's an extra o- 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 oxygen molecule. And it's a very, very um, transient, very reactive, uh, you know, a form of oxygen that only lasts seconds. And so what it does is it's because it's heavier than air, it falls down to the earth. And so after a lightning storm and you go out and you smell that fresh smell that's after a lightning storm, that's ozone. So what it's doing is it's cleaning the atmosphere and coming down almost like washing it and destroying all the the, the pollution and the microbes that are like overpopulating in that air. And then you have that clean, clean, crisp air. So when they measure smog, there are so many different chemicals that are in smog. There's there could be nitrogen, there could be sulfur, there could be petroleum, there could be, uh, you know, arsenic. There could be all this stuff that's suspended in the air. When the ozone is highest, it means the Earth is trying to do its job to clean out all this toxic stuff. So more concentration of O3 is there to try to help clean the Earth. So when people say the ozone level is so high and it's toxic, that's because the earth is so toxic and it's trying to clean the earth. So, you know, when people understand that that's what's protecting, that ozone layer is protecting us. That's what it's doing instead of thinking that it's a toxic gas. So if you breathe ozone directly, it would irritate your lungs. So you really couldn't take but one breath in, you'd be coughing. 
your body won't take it. So that's why you have to buffer it with olive oil or you, you, do, you keep the micrograms per milliliter so small that you can't really uh, sense it. You can smell it a little bit, but it's not heavy enough. So when they use it for viral infections in the body, they can do several different ways. One is um, using it in saline, and which is how I do it a lot, is ozonated saline. And that's a real easy way to give it to animals because everybody does sub-Q fluids and you can sub-Q saline and ozonate it. So if you have an animal that's in pain or has an infection, you can just do sub-Q ozone and it's, really, it's very simple to do and it's great for pain. I mean, dogs that are in pain, um, put it over the back and the pain is, is subsiding. I mean, it's really that amazing. And I do, I, I bathe the area with ozone sub-Q and then I'll put my acupuncture or do my laser or do something over that to try to get it to penetrate through that area and let the oxidative, the oxygen there release. Because when you have oxygen, more oxygen in the fascia, the inflammation is less. So it's giving that oxygen there. And then, um, you know, doing the, the ozone uh, in humans, they don't do sub-Q like that. They do uh, major autohemotherapy, which they take the blood out of, they, like almost like you're doing a blood transfusion. You're donating blood. So you like you're donating blood. They ozonate it outside your body and then they give it back to you once it's been ozonated. And so it, ha it, it increases your mitochondrial function. It increases your Krebs cycle, uh, NAD and ATP. Um, increases the oxygen in your blood. So for COVID, it seems like such a logical thing to do because it's not because the lungs can't take in, the lungs, the oxygen can't come out of the red cells. They, the microcirculation has stopped. The red cells, it's they almost like people explain it as like, you know, you, you're, you've never been on top of a mountain and they put you up at Mount Everest and your red cells can't even absorb any oxygen. Mm. And you, because of that, not because you know, your lungs are filled with fluid and they have to get the fluid off your chest. You just can't assimilate and, and absorb the oxygen into your blood. And that's what ozone tries to do when you do major autohemotherapy. So you know, that's where I think it's such a great mix to put in. You know, they're using that, that ECMO system, which is the heart and lung bypass machine to try to give people more oxygen. And if you can do it with ozone, which costs... You can buy an ozone generator for $2,000 or a heart and lung bypass machine for about a million. Well, which one would you do? You're right. <laughs> no, you, everyone could be hooked up to an ozone generator, you know, be getting this stuff periodically or the one person gets to have, you know, in the whole country gets the heart and lung bypass machine. Yeah, and even that heart and lung bypass machine, the guy that, that actor out in California who was hooked up to it and they were able to save his life. And then he have his leg amputated because it throws blood clots, where ozone prevents blood clots from happening. So he, as I heard yesterday, that he that he's doing really poorly. I mean, he's been in the hospital like for two months, and he's not doing well. And so he had all access to that stuff. I hope that they are able to find way, someone to do oxidative therapies on him, you know, instead of using you know just conventional medicine. But it's sad because nobody's. I feel I feel sad for our. Um, you know, for all the, the conventional trained doctors that have no opportunity to learn about this stuff and are going into these hospitals and we're calling them our heroes and they are heroes, but if they're going into battle without any protection, without any tools to win the battle and are just going, well, we'll, we'll go in and we'll, we have one, 
weapon that we can use, but it doesn't really work. So what are we doing here? You know, it's just sad to me that it's, we've had so many people around the world. Is it how many have died in the world? Like 3 million people have died or something? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe it's not that high yet, but it's going to get there. Mm. <laughs> so oh. I'm not laughing. It's very sad because a lot of people are, are, not, are, not, are not living because of, of opportunities missed. Mm. So, the, cost, but, the cost of ozone, I mean, um, it's actually not that, well, I mean, I mean, I remember Peter was telling me um, the setup that he did was about a thousand US dollars, but he had a bit of yeah. bells and whistles as he called it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but he said, you know, he actually told me because I'm a rescuer, he said, you know, if you're looking at cost and, and, and trying to, you know, save animals, but within, you know, a, a budget, he said, um, mm -hmm. doing ozone therapy would be a long-term, you know, a uh, very good investment in, in terms of helping, helping your, you know, the rescue cases that I, that I will get, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I was really fascinated by that, but like I said, you know, trying to Google um, locally, you know, I haven't actually found a vet. I don't, I might have to look more, you know, spend more time. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, if, if, what you need to find is a vet that is, is not, is, is not satisfied with what they know. Mm. And someone who realizes I need to know more. And I met one vet from Singapore who went to, um, if I can remember his name, he went to uh, China with me with Dr. Shea. And he was, he was actually, um, worked at the zoo. He worked on turtles, I think, in the zoo. Was it a Chinese man? Yeah. And he's quite old, Did, does acupuncture? Yeah, he does acupuncture, but he wasn't old. This is, but I went almost 20 years ago. So it was 2006, so I went like 15 years ago. Okay. To China, 14. Ago. So, um, but finding somebody who's done acupuncture, okay? Okay. They've already opened their brain a little bit like this, okay? So, you know, finding someone who's done acupuncture and herbs, they've opened their brain like this, right? Someone who's done acupuncture, homeopathy, chiropractic has opened it even more. And then it's easier for them to, to, to question, why not? Why not? Mm. You know, I, 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 I'm trying to write a book on ozone therapy and I started it last summer and I've now been distracted for three months working on the COVID stuff. And I, we put together a website, which I'm going to probably release pretty soon and that you can go to it um, and look at the stuff that we're putting on there. We're just trying to give people, you know, what dosage of vitamin C, what dosage of vitamin of zinc, what mm. things that they can use for themselves and, you know, looking at ozone and videos on ozone and the research on ozone and the research on ultraviolet and, and sort of see these things. And it's, we're not prescribing it. We're not, you know, telling people this is what they have to do, but be educated, you know, be, be inquisitive, ask questions, you know, don't just walk as sheep into a, you know, into the, into the wall, you know, it just, it's, it, you really need to be proactive. And the problem is if you got sick, they probably wouldn't let you do it in the hospital. So we have to get these doctors to want to find another solution. Otherwise, that's one of the reasons I, I don't, I'm nervous about getting sick here because I'll go and they'll say, no, no, we're not doing it on you. You know, you can't do that. Mm. So, because I know they'll do that. <laughs> They've already done that to me. I broke, two, four and a half years ago, I was hiking with my dogs and uh, my son's dog, who's shorter, was the poodles were chasing him and her rather. And my, my puppy at that time, he went around the curve and he hit me at probably going like 50 miles an hour down a hill. 
and shattered my tibia and clavicle. I was on hiking poles and I was still standing with a broken shoulder and a broken leg. And I was like, so I was in a wheelchair for, for, for three months. Oh. And so uh, it was pretty bad fracture. And I went to the, the hospital, UMass Memorial Hospital here, a very good hospital. And I, I had to have two major surgeries and one external fixation and then two plates and 11 screws. And I wanted to, I didn't want to take opiates. And I said, I don't want to take opiates. I want to do acupuncture. I want to do myofascial. I want to do um, homeopathy and, and, and ozone. Oh no, you can't do that. We don't know what that'll do. I said, I don't want to take opiates. Oh, you have to take opiates. I said, no, I don't want to take opiates. I said, you know, 40 people a day die in hospitals from prescribed opiates. This is in hospitals, mm -hmm. not the ones that die in the street. It's probably another 140 that die in the street, right? So about 40 die in hospitals. I said, I know what opiates do to you. I don't want to do opiates. So they wouldn't let me do it. I did it anyway. I was drinking ozone water. I was, you know, taking my homeopathics. I was taking my nutraceuticals. And then I had my second surgery um, and then was moved to rehab. And I, I didn't want to take opiates. So I went through the same thing. I don't want to take opiates. And they said, oh, oh no, you can't do those things. We don't know what acupuncture do to you. I said, I know what acupuncture does and I want to do this. So the, I went to the head of the hospital. And he goes, we can't do that. We don't know what it'll do to you. So the nurse comes back to me and she says, I have a great idea. She says, why don't you propose a grant, write a grant and propose it to the rehab center and we'll see what we can do. And I said, I am 40 hours out of five hours of surgery with two plates and 11 screws. I don't want to write a grant so I can get pain relief, right? And so she came back about 20 minutes later and she said, do whatever you want, document it. So every time my husband brought his own water and every time I drank it, every time I took my homeopathics, every time I took my nutraceuticals, when my acupuncturist came in, I made the entire staff watch me do the acupuncture. And as he put the needles in, I said, okay, my pain's gone down by 40%. Um, and I took this, my pain's gone down by 22%. Like, I kept giving them some parameters of what it was. I wrote it all up. I, I went for three months rehab post, um, like outpatient from there. They never did anything with it. They never, I wrote it all up, wrote it as a proposal, wrote up the whole thing. They said, we can't do that. It's complicated in our practice. We, you know. And so unless there's this desire to make a change, it, it's gonna stay in the status quo because you, you, need, you need a push from a doctor or a healthcare provider that wants to take it on and, and be, because and I, I, after doing that, I know if I had got sick now, I, I'd be never, I'd be denier that I would want to take care of me because they would say, we can't do that here. That's not allowed here. And, um, and you probably have the same kind of of, of, you know, of, of regiment, you know, this is the way our hospital runs and we can't bring somebody in who's not certified at our hospital and blah, 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 blah. And I got my acupuncture certified by their hospital and they still never used it again. Uh, they, they'll come up with all sorts of reasons because they say, oh, um, insurance won't cover it. You know, management I don't care. won't cover it. I'll pay for it. You know, you don't pay for it. I pay for it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, when, when I tried to get them to give me good food to help me heal in the rehab, I mean, they would, you know, it was cooked, cooked pears and, you know, and, and, you know, the only, sometimes there was a fresh salad and sometimes there was like fresh, one fresh vegetable and everything else was like at least cooked three times. Right. 
about coming from the can, right? You know, and how are you going to heal somebody eating? I don't even feed my dogs that, you know, I wouldn't feed my dog multiple processed foods, you know, and I'm like, you know, why don't you just give a smoothie twice a day to people? Oh, that would cost too much. We can't. I said, my insurance is paying you about a thousand dollars a day. You could make me a smoothie for a thousand dollars a day, you know, to take care of me. And it's just a whole different, you know, yeah, it's, it's the terrible. mindset. It's the mindset, and you know, I think unless one day, you know, the ones who are con- controlling all that manage all that decision making, and they give an incentive, like usually be monetary incentive to change, you know, then- right. to, to, to short. I mean, if they gave me good food and they gave me, they could shorten the whole stay there. Mm. They shorten people's stay, and the cost would come down. Um, but uh, there's no incentive for the, the rehab center to have the cost come down. They want you to stay there as long as you need to stay there because they want you to keep you there. Right. So, you know, who's incentivized to, you know, doctors should be incentivized to keep the insurance costs down. I mean, they are now with childbirth, you're out of the hospital in 24 hours because they, you know, they do that now, which is probably the best thing that they could do is get you out of the hospital and not have you in there getting, you know, contaminated with, you know, MRSA or something like that, right? So it's better for you to get out of there. But, you know, they did it because it's cost effective. You know, when it comes to these other things that, you know, does the insurance company want to keep you there? No, they don't want you to keep you there. But, you know, that's the, you know, if, if the insurance companies could be incentivized to say, let's get them better food, let's get them good pain management, let's not get them addicted to opiates, let's get them, you know, doing something that really helps their body navigate the healing process so that they can resume life more quickly yeah. and be healthier. And, you know, in our, I don't know how, how's the opiate crisis in Singapore? Is it, it do you have a problem there? Well, um, Singapore is a country, you know, uh, they, they have very stiff penalties for drug trafficking, which is the death penalty, okay. you know, uh, oh, wow. if you are a drug wow. trafficker and you get caught, you will be hanged. You will be killed. Um, I think it's the same for our neighbor yeah. countries in Malaysia and Indonesia as well. Um, very, it's it's a very. Uh, is that include like marijuana too, or just uh, opiates? Okay, in Singapore, marijuana is still considered a class one drug. You know, like like it's they consider it poison. You know, it's it's like heroin that kind of thing. So medical oh, okay. marijuana is still not. Um, legal here in fact you know okay. uh, i actually wrote in once uh i think it was last year because i was i really wanted to try um cbd oil for for my rescues you know because i've read so mm-hmm. much about it and you know looking at what's going on in in, in america with cbd oil for instance like even in israel what they're doing you know with medical uh, marijuana you know i was just yeah. very fascinated by that and and yet here it's still considered uh, 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 um, you know, an offense to, to, to bring it in, yeah. you know, oh, and I, I wrote, I wrote it. In. As a, as, yeah. yeah. As a federal, it's against the law here. So, you know, as our, our state of Massachusetts allows medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Um, and, but still as a veterinarian, I can't prescribe it because I have a federal, uh, FDA license. So mm-hmm. I can't prescribe, you know, marijuana to clients they have to do it themselves uh they can buy it themselves at a store and you know but i can't communicate with them it's oh, no. it's, it's really 
it, it's sad because they would rather, like it's just as much as they would rather you be on the opiates that they can, you know, that, that you can't grow yourself particularly, but you could grow your own marijuana plant and have your own marijuana that you could use um, if it's something that could help you with an, a medical condition. Um, you know, so it's just, um, and, and, you know, when it comes to the microbiome, um, I think marijuana or cannabis itself and the plant is such an ancient, ancient plant. It's a really old plant and our microbes have been used to living with it and the animals have been eating it for millions of years and we've been taking it away from their whole immune system for the last 20 years maybe. It's been considered, at least a few years, it's been considered a, you know, not a, an illegal substance, you know. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's, it's to me a, a safer way for the body to have, if people are using it for recreation, um, I think alcohol is so much more dangerous than, yeah. than being an herb that has, that your body, it's an old plant that your body gets to know, whereas alcohol is used, they're using alcohol in Purell, which is to kill all the microbes on your body, you know? Um, you know, so why not give your body something that helps enhance your gut flora, which yeah. I, I think cannabis does, you know, yeah. so. Well, unfortunately, the Singapore um, mindset from, as, from the government top down is that it's a drug, you know, it's like mm -hmm. heroin. And it, we have a very, very strong anti-drug stance in Singapore, where if you're, well, if you're a drug right. addict, if you're a drug addict, they will reha rehabilitate you, you know. Um, but if you're a trafficker, wow. You will face the death penalty, you know. Well, no, I, 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 I think the death penalty for heavy drug path, you know, is is you can, especially the, all the people that are dying from it in our country. Um, we have so many people, so many kids that are overdosing on uh, with the the fentanyl, and it's just terrible. I mean, it's so sad. It's so sad. It's gotten better because they have Narcan out, but the number of people that have died is is just outrageous. Yeah. At people and and so we we have to you know i you know to have people in in the government uh understand that you know self-medication with anything is is not necessary if somebody's mentally healthy but so many people are not and it's probably coming from their microbiome because the brain gut connection is off mm. and so people have this dys dysbiosis that is affecting their gut because we see dogs that are aggressive and, uh, and, and anxious and really difficult dogs, we give them a fecal transplant and they become happy, healthier, oh, that's, that's amazing. friendly I blows my mind. It bl I, I get so excited when I, when I get clients that it happens with, that they give the microbiome and these dogs who are fearful of something. Um, I have one, one client who's, it's, that, it's now three years, right? It's, Kaylee's like three, it's been three years because it was like the middle of May when she came in three years ago. And she had been diagnosed uh, at an oncologist and her conventional vet of having hemangiosarcoma in the abdomen. So having, having cancer in the abdomen and in the leg. And it was a beagle. So this dog was a beagle who was, was, was a Velcro dog, never left the owner's side never ran away, never dug a hole, never would go near water, and just was very, very insecure and stuck to the owner, right? 
and she got lost in the woods for about 15 minutes, came running back screaming, and she took her to the vet, and she said she's got cancer. They've got cancer in the abdomen and cancer in the leg, and they did CAT scan, and they did biopsies, and they couldn't confirm the mangio, hemangiosarcoma, but they said, it, we can't control this dog's pain. It's in terrible pain. You have to euthanize it. So before she euthanized it, she talked to her friend, and she said, well, did you try Dr. Roman? Did you, you know, it, she didn't know anything about integrative medicine. So she came to the clinic and the dog couldn't walk. Its whole leg was twice the size. Its abdomen was swollen um, and she was just couldn't, couldn't walk. And so I said, I, I'm not convinced that it's cancer that happens like so acutely like that. You know, maybe she had some other injury. Now she's re-injured herself and it's all like my chest had this big blood clot in it. Maybe she had blood clots from, if she was a shelter dog, she had some other injury. Maybe it's something else. I'm not, there's no, I'm not convinced it's cancer. So let's just try all the things we do. Let's do ozone. We'll do UVI. We'll inject her, you know, with vitamins. We'll give her ozone. We'll do a fecal transplant because she'd been on antibiotics for two weeks and nothing had happened. Right. And in three days, three days, she's totally normal wow. running around, went down. Right. And the owner, the most amazing part of this whole story was just freaked me out. The dog was afraid of water, afraid of a puddle, wouldn't leave the other side, was running away, running into the water, digging holes, chasing vermin, never did this. This is a beagle. That's what beagles do, right? Beagles like dig holes, run into water, make up their mess. You know, they're, they're not, you know, pristine little dogs that just stay next to the owner, right? So she's, she's been a dog. She wasn't a dog before. So I felt that she, number one, she acted like the poodle that my dog, Vienna does that. She's got such an intense nose. She can smell a hole like, and start digging out of nowhere. And, you know, she'll find a hole. Her kids aren't as intense about digging holes and, and jumping in the lake. So she jumps in the lake, jumps in the holes, jumps in, you know, does all this stuff. And she, she just picked up my dog's personality. So every year when she comes in and I'm missing her this year, so I ask her, you know, because she's always muddy and filthy, <laughs> and, you know, bringing home all these things, you know, and I always ask her, I said, which one did you like better? The one that was the, the felt, she said, well, it was so much easier taking care of her, you know, when she never got dirty. Now I have to give her a bath all the time because she's always, you know, comes in with a filthy nose covered with dirt, you know, so anyway. <laughs> So, but it just changed her microbiome completely. And, th and we still don't know what's wrong with this dog. I don't know what's wrong with this dog. You know, what happened? I don't know. You know, they, I tried to go back to the, the oncologist. They wouldn't talk to me. They didn't want to know anything. About it. And that, that to me is very disturbing <laughs> that they don't want to know. You know. Why wouldn't you want to know? Okay, it's okay, Eliza Malama. And, no, they close off their mind. I think, uh, I think the sad thing with a lot of... Uh, the, the medical professionals, they to, I've done my training, I know everything, you know, I did my degree, I got my, my certification, so I know, I think, hello. This is Hannah. Say hi, Hannah. Hi. I want to go for a walk, it's time for getting close to our walk time, yes. yes. <laughs> yes she's, she's two years and, and two months. Are you two years, two months? Yes, you are? Okay. <laughs> that's vienna barking vienna shh, shh. somebody's walking on our but we, we live on, on a lake and they're walking along oh, the lake and so the dog 
if there's a dog out there, she's like, you know, wants to protect our property from the dog. <laughs> so anyway, so, um, but, you know, but it's to, to try to, you know, get to another veterinarian who is open-minded and finding somebody in Singapore that can be your, uh, your veterinarian that is willing to expand their mind and not just have to go by the pharmaceutical drug book that they learned in vet school. And all the vet schools, I mean, I, I've lectured in India, I've lectured in Thailand, I've lectured in China, um, and they all, the, the big co corporations have come in there and they run the nutrition department. You know, you see the Hills Diet and the Royal Canaan uh, posters up in the clinics. Um, so they're teaching them all about nutrition and how you need to be following these guidelines of feeding your dog um, one of their products because that's the only way that you're going to balance your dog's dog food. Yeah. And, you know, finding organic and healthier sources and looking and finding, you know, reputable people that have recipes for feeding a raw, fresh diet is going to be the way animals were designed to eat, not processed food. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, like over here, um, even like with, um, you know, pet owners, a lot of them, you know, still believe that, well, the doctor, the vet is always right. Trust the vet because the vet knows best. Even when, you know, um, I always hear same, usually the same story. It's like, oh, there's something on my dog, skin issues or, you know, bloody, bloody diarrhea or something like that. And they keep going to the vet and the vet will always mm -hmm. give some sort of, um, they give the, the yeah, antibiotic <laughs> or steroids, you know, I mean, like even my, my dog, who, which I adopted when she was like seven months old and she had Demodex mange and, you know, she was a very, she still is, you know, a, a very sensitive, uh, reactive dog when, you know, she gets spooked very easily. And, you know, um, I remember bringing her because she of her skin problems and the vet finally said, you know what, I think she's just allergic to grass. Maybe you should just don't walk her on grass, make her wear shoes. And she's a mongrel. She's about 20 kilos kind of size. I mean, not, not big, but, you know, like to me, it's like small, medium, normal size mongrel. And the vet said, you know, um, don't walk her on grass, let her wear shoes and she'll be fine. And I'm like, that's normal. <laughs> you know, you know, I don't think it's normal well, for a dog to wear shoes. Well, that's the thing. The dogs, you know, are supposed to be in the dirt. They're supposed to be running around. They're supposed to be eating sticks. They're supposed to be, you, you know, know yeah. and they're not. They, they are, they're given, you know, fake bones. They're given, you know, fake food. They're given, you know, all these pesticides that they're put on them, spot-ons and medication. And it's not, it's not a live relationship within their body. They're killing, you know, heartworm preventive was used as an antibiotic the intestinal tract interceptor and See, i didn't guard. know that i didn't know yeah. that and i and i bet you all the pet owners in singapore don't know that because they only know yeah. that it's just a heartworm medication and because we live in the tropics and there's mosquito breeding you and all that right. right so you it's know. it is heartworm is ep epidemic in where you live and also in florida where i grew up and up here it's not as bad so you know it it, it it, it's hard, but every time you, you know, you, you do that, I mean, if you can, ideally you can save your dog's microbiome and give them the heartworm pill and then give them their microbiome back at least, you know, it, unless they have intestinal parasites and then yeah. you, 
but they probably have intestinal parasites because they're so weakened from the heartworm penetration that they keep getting because they don't have the other species to inter interplay. I mean, there are 500 species and a thousand subspecies in a fecal. Wow. So how many of those are needed to keep your dog from getting hookworms? How many are needed to keep your dog to be able to absorb nutrition that helps its liver? We know that the precursors from oxytocin and serotonin and all that come from the gut. So all this information coming from the microbiome is, is it to me, is fascinating. They, they know this much about the microbiome now. And, you know, we just think it was poop, you know, and now we realize, oh my God, it's a lot more than that. We still have vets here who, who don't believe that probiotics is important, you know. So when I talk to, when well, I... They're just, they're just way behind, yeah. Yeah, so when and, I... And, you know, well, you know and, and I tell them, like, you know, you, you need to build up the microbiome in the gut. I keep telling them, it's so important. The gut brain, it's, it's so important. Yeah. You know, you heal the gut, you heal the microbiome, everything else will fall into place, you know. I... You're totally, you're, that, that, that is how I've been able to navigate in the last, last eight years. I've realized that the most important thing that I can do for that animal is set them, their gut up so that they can heal themselves. And yeah. so that to me is the key part. And the ozone helps me do that because ozone gets rid of biofilm. So we do ozone prior to the fecal transplants, kill off the biofilm, which is what is is a multiplication of bacteria that the animal has in its system and if that animal that what that dog has in the system is not a good thing then it's just blocking any other chance for something else to come in so by doing the rectal ozone we use ozone to kill bacteria in our mouth we use ozone to, to kill bacteria in water. We're using ozone to kill viruses. I'm using it now. One of the cases that I talked about in, in, the, in the lecture that I gave on COVID is that I had a, um, I have two cases I presented in the ozone summit, which you could probably get for free. It's the uh, O3 vets had a veterinary summit about six weeks ago. Did you watch that by chance? I don't know if you've watched um, it. I missed but they, it, but I saw, I saw the link because I had a look at O3 Vet uh, when I was looking at about ozone. Yeah, because I, th I, they they, I, th I thought that Jonathan and his father went to Singapore and taught some human doctors. I mean, you could check with them to see whether I thought it was Singapore. Um, but anyway, um, that the, the, the whole point was there were two cases I presented. One was of a coronavirus outbreak in a cattery 15 years ago. Right. And the one kitten got out of the cattery uh, by my girlfriend, a friend of mine, and she got the cat and it wasn't very healthy when she got it. And in a few days, it was really sick with an upper respiratory. And she called the shelter and they, she, they told her that they had broke out with a coronavirus outbreak and they had already lost several cats and they, were, they couldn't save them. They were all so infected and so sick that they were going to, they either were going to try to save a few of them, but they euthanized everybody. Oh. And um, so her cat came to me and was all this just pure, just discharged from this little kitten. It was about, you know, seven weeks old, uh, Maine Coon cat, and um, just really sick. And she, um, we decided to use ozone. I'd never done it before. And I used ozone through olive oil and in, in, in its carrier put a garbage bag over the carrier so I could make it like an oxygen tank, tank, t tent rather. 
and we did it. And of course it killed the virus and this, you know, in the cat, we only left it in a few minutes and the cat was like pure, like stuff was coming out of its nose and it's, it was like just foaming out of its mouth, foaming out of its nose. And she drove home and while she was driving home, she had to pull over because the cat was choking on all this material coming out of its nose and out of its mouth. She was like, she was like pulling out like spaghetti out of its nose and just, it was like the lining of the bronchioles was just pouring out. And in two days, the cat was totally normal. It just passed away 15 years later, about three months ago, uh, from mammary cancer, which we treated with ozone for about three and a half years. So that was to me an amazing corona. I mean, none of the other cats survived. You know, and it was a it was a fast discharge. You know, I would have now I do it. I wouldn't do it like that. I would do it slower. But maybe I need to do it fast and let things just get out. Like you know, just jerking out the pulling the stuff out of the lungs. Mm. You know, and letting it happen that way. And then I had a, a an entire kennel that broke with parvo, and they were up in New Hampshire. And these were all sled dog. Uh, type dogs that that she had and she had one puppy who was nine months old who had been vaccinated for parvo and the whole kennel had been vaccinated for parvo except for four, five puppies and and so the five puppies were five or six weeks old and the mother dog was breaking with parvo too and she had taken the the, the puppy to the uh, er and spent three thousand dollars and she they said we can't do any more for the dog the dog is dying just put it down it's, it's, we're not going to be able to save it. Don't spend your money on this dog. We've got all these other dogs. Don't spend it on this puppy. And so I, she called me and said, could I see you? And I, I, I'd seen her as a kid when she, you're like 20 years ago. She, I said, yeah, just don't take your dog out of the car. Don't get out of the car. Stay in your car. We'll treat the dog from the back and leave the catheter in. And she drove down. And when she dropped that pick puppy, she dropped off the mother dog of the five puppies to get treated for the parvo. We saw that puppy. I when I went out to the car, I thought it was dead. I didn't see it breathe. I got to sit there for a while and and watch it. And I saw breath, you know, her, it, the chest move, and the anus was was flaccid. There was blood pouring out of the anus. The mouth was all white. The dog didn't have any reflexes. Was just like under anesthesia kind of thing. And so I said, well, I don't know. Let's try ozone and let's try a fecal transplant. We did ozone ultraviolet blood therapy and a fecal transplant. And I gave it some vitamin B complex and C and A and D. And I said, don't let this puppy near anybody. And I'm going to give you, we did the fecal transplant on the dog. I'm going to give you poop to give everyone else in the kennel. And I'm going to give you subcutaneous ozonate saline to give everyone in the kennel. And um, I said, don't let anyone near this puppy. So she said, I'll take it up my back stairs. I'll put it on the third floor and I'll take a shower and come down. So she did that, came down, was making dinner, turns around, and the puppy is behind her wanting to eat. Wow. So it was about four and a half hours from the time I treated the dog to the time it was downstairs. That's amazing. And the entire kennel survived, except the mother that never got the ozone and the fecal transplant at the emergency clinic. She died. Ah. And everybody else survived from the fecal transplant and the ozone. And a homeopathic um, no sewed for parvo. So was that a double placebo blind study? No, because I didn't write it up and propose it and have her documented, but they were all confirmed with PCR. But I, I can't say that that, you know, but 
what I have deducted from that, and I, I, I think science needs to be seriously looking at it. They're looking at convalescent serum now for treating you know, COVID. They've been doing that now for several months all over the world, but they should be looking at convalescent myome because the microbiome has bacteriophages in it, and that very well could be what saved those puppies was the bacteriophages and not the uh, not only the microbiome but the, the the viruses that the body is producing that have that have balanced out the body from the COVID. Oh. That's just something that people need to be seriously looking at and if getting any scientists that, that somehow watch this and say, let's look at the antibodies in the body's blood, but let's look at the, the microbiome and how it shifted after mm -hmm. somebody had COVID and who recovered and what microbiomes are there. And they're not going to be able to identify all the viruses. They still haven't been able to, they don't know them all. Mm. Don't know all of them, you know? So anyway. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for listening to Dr. Roman's story. Look out for Dr. Laurie Koja's interview next week. Wow, I'm so thankful and grateful that you took the time to listen to this podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could subscribe, download, rate, review, and share this with others whom you care about that may enjoy it as well. Thank you, and remember to be kind to yourself and others. Have a awesome day, everyone.